0: This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, December 27th. I'm Doug Blair.
1: And I'm Virginia Allen. We hope that you all had a wonderful Christmas. Throughout this week, we are going to be bringing you all your and our favorite podcast interviews from 2021 and today i'm excited to share my conversation with michael schellenberger the author of the book san francisco why progressives ruin cities he explains how the homeless crisis got so out of control in san francisco and so many other west coast cities and provides a roadmap for how that problem can be fixed
0: We won't be sharing news headlines this week as much of our team is off enjoying the holiday season. But we hope you enjoyed this conversation with Michael Schellenberger as we kick off our best of 2021 podcast series.
1: I am so pleased to welcome Michael Schellenberger to the Daily Signal podcast. Michael is the author of the new book. San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. Michael, thanks so much for being here, and congratulations on the new book.
2: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Now, you have lived and worked in San Francisco for a really long time. Explain why you wrote this book. You do not mince words in the title San Francisco. What is the mission behind this book?
2: Sure. Um, well, I wrote this book because I love San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco in 1993 after graduating from college. I moved to San Francisco to work on progressive causes, radical left causes. I'm best known for my work on the environment, in particular around nuclear energy, which I've been focused on for the last 20 years. But in the late 1990s, I worked for a number of George Soros funded nonprofits. I worked for George Soros's foundation. I helped to advocate to decriminalize um, drugs, uh, Promote drug treatment, promote harm reduction, including the uh, the exchange of clean needles for for dirty ones. Worked with Maxine Waters uh, from Los Angeles to add, to organize civil rights leaders in support of needle exchange. And as drug overdose deaths rose from seventeen thousand in the year two thousand to over seventy thousand by twenty seventeen, I started to worry and. This is an issue that I have always cared a lot about, even if I hadn't worked on it very much in the last um, couple decades. You know, my aunt had schizophrenia. My parents are psychologists. I've, uh, I live in the Bay Area. I live in Berkeley across the Bay from San Francisco. Um, I'm still in many ways a bleeding heart liberal. I'm a very sensitive person. Uh, I really uh, bothers me to see the suffering of people that are obviously suffering from drug addiction or mental illness or some combination of the two I wrote a couple of pieces for Forbes in 2019. Um, The first one I wrote was sort of around the contribution of housing to homelessness. But then after I wrote that, a number of friends were like, look, you know, you you have to consider drug addiction and mental illness. And I was like, yeah, of course. Um, I knew that was a big part of it. And I read a lot more about it and learned that a lot of the things I believed were wrong. You know, one of the things that you listen, when you interview progressives still to this day, and I discovered this quite a bit in my research, they they blame Reagan, uh, first as governor in the 1960s, and then as president um, for the homeless crisis. Even though you know progressives have controlled California for decades, um, they have a super. Democrats have a super majority in Congress. We spend more than any other state per capita on homelessness and mental illness, and we have the worst outcomes. And so I wanted to write San Francisco to both get to the bottom of what's really going on. And also figure out what the solutions are, uh, because it's it's obviously we're dealing with a catastrophe. You know, I mentioned drug overdose deaths rose from seventeen thousand to seventy thousand by twenty seventeen. Last year, drug deaths were ninety three thousand, which is almost three times as many people than die from car accidents, and four times as many people as die from homicide. So clearly, we are in the midst of a massive drug crisis, and it felt like nobody was offering. A particularly clear explanation of it, or offering very good solutions.
1: I love that that curiosity and that drive to say, okay, there, there's obviously an issue here, and we actually need to find a solution. You're asking the hard questions. That's that's something we really need more of. Now, Michael, for for those who have not been to San Francisco, for those who are are not too familiar maybe with the situation there, if you were to leave your house, cross the Bay, and walk through the streets of San Francisco, give us a picture of what we would see.
2: Sure. So, you know, San Francisco remains, you know, one of the most spectacularly beautiful cities in the the world, just driving across the Bay Bridge into San Francisco. Its skyline is stunning. You know, it's um, uh, three major bridges, Uh, from, uh, you know, into San Francisco. Um, You know, it's incredible skyline, beautiful, surrounded by water, humpback whales not far from the coast. But as soon as you drive downtown, you see tents. You see what are euphemistically called homeless encampments. But they are more accurately described as open drug scenes. That's the expression that's used by European researchers. I point out that um, the Europeans dealt with this exact same problem in the 1980s uh, in places like Zurich, Switzerland, Amsterdam, Netherlands, uh, Lisbon, Portugal, Frankfurt, Germany. And what you find is just these are people that uh, are living on the street. They're living on the street because they're uh, almost all of them, if not really all of them, are suffering from severe drug addiction, severe drug and alcohol addiction, In the 1980s, what we called homelessness, and I point out in the book that homelessness is a propaganda word. It was designed to mislead people about what's really going on. It was designed by progressives to mislead people into thinking that people live on the street because they can't afford the rent. That's not the case. Uh, The people on the street we know have been, are there for, because of addiction and untreated mental illness. And you know, look, there's some people that think that all addiction is a consequence of untreated mental illness. I'm not sure I would go that far, but clearly, a significant percentage of people on the street are suffering from some sort of mental illness, whether severe like schizophrenia or uh, just depression, untreated depression. And and yeah, you see, you know, you see people openly using drugs, smoking fentanyl, which is which is responsible for about half of the drug deaths people defecating in public. It's very common to see that. Uh, and you see just a lot of tents. Um, you know, uh, hundreds of people. San Francisco officially has about 5,000 unsheltered homeless, meaning people that are not in shelters, but on the streets are, are actually thousands more because a lot of the people on the streets using drugs are people that, that may have a shelter. Or they may have a, an apartment or a single resident occupancy room. But are still living on the streets. So that's what you see. It looks like a third, like it looks like our what we think a third world country looks like. I'm somebody that spent a fair amount of time in Brazil, in Africa, in India. I've been, I, I go to slums every time I go to developing and poor countries. This is different in this, in the sense that obviously San Francisco is one of the richest cities in the world. I mean, the number of billionaires per capita is is huge. It's obviously the center of much of our technology boom, and so the the drug crisis is the result of policies, deliberate policies that are imposed by progressives, demanded by progressives, to not require, not treat addiction, not treat mental illness, and to basically defend the right of people to sleep anywhere, defecate anywhere, and not uh, be arrested, not be mandated treatment.
1: Hmm. Okay. So I know you you dive really deeply into this in the book in San Francisco. I'll hold it up. Excellent, excellent read. Encourage uh, all of our Thank listeners you. to pick up a copy, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. But talk a little bit more about the policies. What what do you mean by policies uh, led to this? How, how have we gotten to this moment in San Francisco uh, where there are literally, like you say, now these encampments and individuals openly using drugs and no one is is stepping in to stop them
2: yeah there's so many levels to pick on this it's why I really required a whole book um, and I <laughs> I told people you know even though even after three hours with Joe Rogan it yeah. still didn't cover all of it but at the very simplest level You do not need to have anybody living on the street if you just build enough shelters and require people to use them. That's what most cities, most developed and civilized cities around the world have done. Before the pandemic, New York basically sheltered 99 percent of its homeless. And the reason that we... We have so many people unsheltered living on the street in California is because the progressives have opposed building sufficient shelters and requiring people to use them. So at the simplest level, it's just that. It's just that we have had what's called a housing first policy, rather than a shelter first policy. Housing first, of course, meaning this idea that anybody who wants their own apartment should be able to get one. It's completely ludicrous. I mean, even if you are a socialist, even if you're a radical left, It doesn't make any sense you can't provide that much apartments and housing for people first of all you just can't build it in san francisco because there's so much nimbyism and the regulations are so strict against building housing but also there's just not the money for it you can't just provide free apartments for everybody that may seem more obvious to listeners of heritage foundation than than listeners to msnbc but it's just the fact of the matter Then you kind of go back further and you go, what is the history of untreated mental illness and addiction? San Francisco is a city that has always tolerated much more extensive alcohol and drug use than other cities. very high, you know, more bars than churches uh, for, you know, its entire founding. It was the last city to ban opium dens in the 19th century. It obviously was the epicenter of the, the new drug culture in the 1960s, which introduced most famously marijuana and psychedelics, um, but much more insidiously heroin and amphetamines. And we've really um, those things have only gotten worse. The deinstitutionalization of psychiatric hospitals, the closure of psychiatric hospitals begins after World War II. It accelerates under President John Kennedy. It was actually a progressive, Um, it was progressives who led the charge to empty the mental hospitals. The promise was we would have community based care. That was never built. It's something that progressives blame Reagan for as governor. But the truth is that that half of the people in psychiatric hospitals had already been released by the time Reagan became governor. It's one of the many things I debunk in the book. I also debunk the claim that Reagan slashed the federal budget for housing. In fact, the budget for the federal budget for housing was basically steady during Reagan's years in office. Um, at the same time, I, by the way, I should add, I do make a critique of Republicans and conservatives in the book. At the end, I argue that Republicans and conservatives have not offered a proper urban policy. That they've been, you know, Republicans and conservatives tend to be more suburban and rural, and they don't care as much about the cities, and they tend to. Look down on the cities, and so they haven't engaged in the cities. And I I extend that criticism at the end. But nonetheless, it's wrong to blame Reagan and Republicans for what's happened in San Francisco. And so, what you basically have is massive untreated mental illness, including severe mental illness. You have the ACLU, which I think in many other contexts has done good things. I have been a longtime supporter of ACLU, but in this case, we have the ACLU irrationally defending uh leaving people with schizophrenia on the street in states of psychosis using hard drugs uh living in totally unsafe unsanitary conditions uh having a complete double standard and when it comes to requiring people with dementia for example our grandparents who suffer from dementia either from alzheimer's or something else we don't let grandma and grandpa wander onto the streets and yet we allow people in psychotic states to do that They use a double standard to justify it. And what I get at the bottom line here is that this is a victim ideology, meaning that there's an ideology here and it's just as dumb as it sounds. Unfortunately, it's the idea that you can classify certain groups of people as victims. The racist aspect of this is that progressives classify all African-Americans, all people of color, except for Asians as victims and But they also classify people with mental illness as victims. They classify children. They classify women, you know, uh, gays and lesbians, uh, uh, people suffering addiction are all classified as victims. That's the first thing they do. The second thing they do, which is as insidious, is that they believe that to victims, everything should be given and nothing demanded. This is terrible for raising kids. It's also terrible for dealing with people suffering from addiction and mental illness. You know, the fact of the matter is a fair number of the people on the street are, have been victimized. I mean, it's true. There's a lot of, there's a higher percentage of people on the street that were abused, you know, foster kids and were, you know, physically or sexually or emotionally abused. And that's terrible. But that's, that does not merit giving people the cash to use drugs, giving them hotel rooms in which to use drugs, giving people the paraphernalia in which to use drugs. During the pandemic pandemic. The city of San Francisco was even the work. The social workers for the city were actually buying people alcohol and delivering alcohol and drugs to people's hotel rooms. It's, it's so bonkers that when I describe it, it sounds like I'm describing a fictional dystopian film, but this is actually what's happening in San Francisco. And so the San Fran sickness that the title refers to, yes, it's referring to the folks that are living in squalor on the streets, but it also is referring to a kind of compassion sickness a compassion unchecked by discipline, by reciprocity, by personal responsibility, by the things that people need in order to improve their lives.
1: Yeah, and you talked a lot about that kind of victim victim mentality, victim mindset during your conversation with Joe Rogan like you mentioned excellent conversation. So how does that translate? You referred to it with with Joe Rogan as kind of a coddling mindset. How does that translate? to policy. What's the what's the line of thinking that we're seeing from politicians going from okay, these people are are victims, we need to care for them, but how has that translated in policy to we do nothing to stop them from, you know, openly using drugs as much as they want, living wherever they want, doing whatever they want.
2: Yeah, I mean, you you just said it. It's the coddling that has been increasing really for 150 years is now extended to people on the street so we're coddling the people on the street we're coddling addicts we're coddling criminals we're coddling you know would-be murderers rather than providing them with the discipline and the rules that they need in order to live happy and healthy lives i mean look to some extent the cod what we call coddling started out as kind of positive i mean let's face it life on the farm was pretty rough kids were beaten with sticks and rods We know the rise of, we know that coddling was already increasing when you started hearing people say things like spare the rod, spoil the child. So there's always been a recognition that, you know, as we go from farm to city, kids, you know, this is, to some extent, this is a process that's been really wonderful for children. They can be children. They don't have to be workers, little workers or little adults, which is how we used to see kids. But obviously it's gotten way too far. You know, I mean, we see the rise of participation trophies for kids that, don't succeed in sports, basically a shielding of children from adversity. And yet we know that adversity, that overcoming adversity is what builds strength and resilience. I mean, one of the questions I had is, you know, there's a lot of upper middle-class parents or middle-class parents that are very progressive and liberal in the Bay Area who, yeah, they coddle their kids to some extent, but they also require their kids to do their homework. They require their kids to do chores. They require their kids to do sports. They require some amount of adversity to their kids. But then when it comes to their politics, they'll say things like, you shouldn't require abstinence, for example, before giving people housing, because that would be blaming the victim. So there's a bit of a double standard here. One of the most interesting things I discovered is that the drug rehab centers in Malibu, which is this very rich coastal community north of Los Angeles, you know, the thing that rock stars and celebrities go to, $50,000 a month. They're very strict in drug rehab for rich people. They're very strict. They're hard on you. Um, that's what you pay for. And yet, for the poor on Skid Row in Los Angeles, which is just a devastating area, you know, thousands of people addicted to hard drugs dying on the streets. I mean, literally, it's it sounds bizarre to describe, but literally, when I visited Skid Row last time, there were just people passed out on the sidewalk um, on fentanyl, on heroin that's it just in the sunlight you know lying on the ground i mean there was too many people to even check to see if they were alive so the coddling is is now part of our policy response you know and as i point out i had this very revelatory trip to amsterdam which in every respect mm-hmm. is a very liberal city you can smoke marijuana in these coffee shops they have psychedelics are very in fashion sex work is kind of decriminalized regulated Uh, They're not a bunch of Puritans in Amsterdam, but there's nobody on the streets. There's no homeless people, so-called homeless people. There's nobody on the streets using drugs. They make people stay in shelter and they enforce their laws. And so this, what we have in San Francisco, it's a more radical, you know, because there's people, you know, in Boston and New York, we are now starting to see open drug scenes. We have, there's now a big open drug scene in Boston. But it's nothing like the west coast so it's really the combination of a kind of wild west libertarianism and libertinism with a kind of progressive victimology that's been what's been so toxic and devastating for uh for people suffering from addiction and drug and and mental illness
1: yeah now i know in writing the book you kind of went on a on a search to see okay who is actually addressing this correctly? Who's doing this well? Like you said, you went to Amsterdam, you spent time in the Netherlands, you talked to leaders. What did you discover uh, that the Dutch are are doing really well? And what are some of the principles that you learned from them that you're trying to convince individuals in America, hey, we could actually do this here?
2: Yeah, I mean, what I discovered ought to be great news for both reasonable liberals and reasonable conservatives you know the first thing is that in amsterdam they have the the back-end services so they have shelter for everybody that needs shelter they have housing for the people that really do need subsidized housing they have psychiatric beds and psychiatric care for the people that need that um, they have the police working with the social workers you know, it's both and so in some ways it may sound really like I'm trying to be there's a lot of fake bipartisanship right now. There's a lot of fake efforts at it, but this is really truly both and approach. You need police and you need social workers. They're not the same thing, but they need to work together. And so you get these buddy stories of police and social workers that have been working together in Netherlands that are really important. You know we're starting to see some of that in the United States, but not nearly enough. You know, one question is do you need to have you know single-payer healthcare? I mean, that's what the left has long wanted, right? They want socialized medicine. Amsterdam does not have socialized medicine, but they do have universal coverage. And so they actually have a private insurance model that like we have in the United States, but they you make sure that everybody's covered. And so that is something that we need to do. That's something that I think reasonable conservatives and liberals should would agree on. You know, to some extent we have that with Medicaid but you can't be in situations where we don't have insurance to cover people's psychiatric care. The other thing is there's some amount of discernment. I mean, my aunt had schizophrenia. She had a pretty good life for a, for a person with, with schizophrenia which is a very serious mental illness. She lived in a, in a group home as we call it residential care. She had her own room, she shared a house and a kitchen and a living space with other people, but she didn't work, she couldn't work. Some people with schizophrenia can work, but she wasn't able to. I think most conservatives understand that there's a certain number of people in our society with mental disabilities like schizophrenia who, if they can work, it's great for them and it's great for everybody else, but some of them can't. But that's different from a 25 year old guy who's addicted to heroin you know, who probably just needed an antidepressant and some purpose in life and some Jordan Peterson lectures um, in order to get (laughs) on the straight and narrow. Um, that, That young man needs to get his life in order. And that means that he needs to be, after he breaks the law, if you're a street addict, you're breaking the law every day, usually, including theft to sustain your drug habit. He needs to be offered the choice of if you know when arrested, offer the choice of jail or drug rehab. And then he needs a personal plan. He needs an assertive caseworker. He needs to have a. uh, He needs to know what he's going to do when he gets out of rehab. He needs to have a job. He needs to have a place he's going to live, preferably living somewhere far away from open drug scenes. And the drug scenes need to be shut down. You can't allow open air drug dealing in a city. I mean, it's absurd. We have. You know, like literally two dozen drug dealers selling you any amount of drugs in not just San Francisco but other major cities in the United States. We have to shut that down. This is not rocket science. You can't allow open drug dealing. Does that mean that you're going to eliminate drug dealing? No, but I'll tell you, it's interesting. Um, if you're if you're an addict and it's and there's no open drug dealing, you often have to spend a bunch of your day finding your drugs. Buying them. And that means you end up doing less drugs. So it's not, it's not great. You know, I'd love to see fentanyl eliminated in meth, but these are highly concentrated drugs. We haven't been able to get rid of them. I think the idea that we can stop China or Mexico from getting them over the border is a fantasy. You can mail enough fentanyl to somebody through FedEx to supply an entire city, but you can shut down the open drug dealing. That's easy. Shut it down. The addicts will end up using less. Um, Right now, it's too easy. You know, the open drug scenes are addicts living in open drug markets. And they're just ending up using hard drugs every four hours. I mean, it's barbaric and it makes them sick and they die. And so, you know, you can't allow that. But we do need a better, I think the message for conservatives is that and, and the liberals too, but I think in the sense that you do need a, to fix our psychiatric and addiction care system, it's just not working. And I think that is something that I did find some agreement mo- among conservatives with. There's just not a free market. There's not a market among schizophrenics to pay for their mental health care. They just don't have the money and they can't do it. And even addicts are people that have spent basically all their resources and stolen usually from family and friends to sustain their habit. That's just not something that's going to be served by free markets. There's got to be some amount of government involvement and it just should be smart and it should be efficient and it should, there should be a hierarchy and there should be accountability and responsibility. So I do think there's plenty in the proposal that I'm making for Cal psych to centralize addiction and psychiatric care to appeal to both reasonable Republicans and to reasonable Democrats.
1: When it goes with uh, the analogy that, that you have given, I know in the past of the carrot and the stick, correct. Of okay, we need to make sure that we're actually motivating individuals who are on drugs to make changes in their life. And then uh, there have to be consequences when uh, when proper you know action isn't taken.
2: It seems so basic, doesn't it? I mean it's it's <laughs> it was one of those things where you when I asked my, the character in the book, the terrific character, his name is Renee, he's Dutch. He's actually a nurse. He was a former professional soccer player, very charismatic, very blunt. And I was like, and they, he and his wife, who's a member of Parliament, they love to travel. So they love San Francisco. And I was like, what, what is going on in my hometown? What's, What are we doing wrong? And he was like, you look, he goes, look, dude, you need carrots and sticks. You gotta have carrots and sticks you got to have consequences for bad behavior. you got to enforce the law. Um, At the same time, you should reward people. You know, addicts, what's happening, we now know, you know, at the brain chemistry level, although honestly, addiction science hasn't progressed that much, but we know that addicts are seeking rewards. So you want to provide some other reward as a kind of high, a dopamine high for addicts when they perform well. So if you pass your drug test, you should get something, you know, a gift card, you should be get your own private room, you should, you know, something should be done as a carrot for you. It seems so basic, but basically what we've done in progressive cities out of this softening, this coddling in the culture is we've removed all the sticks. We've mm-hmm. actually removed the carrots too, because they're, they're even giving, when you give somebody something that they have not earned, it's not actually a mm-hmm. carrot, it's an entitlement at that point. And so for it to be yeah. a true reward, you have to earn it. That's why participation trophies are so terrible. Kids mm-hmm. know, why am I getting a participation trophy? I lost. And it's supposed mm-hmm. to it's supposed to feel bad to lose. <laughs> like, you um, <laughs> should feel good to play the game. You should feel like you just have fun playing the game, but you shouldn't get a trophy for playing the game. And so similarly, you should not give people housing for being a drug addict, you know you should get. If you down on mm-hmm. your luck, maybe you and you and you quit drugs, then maybe you do get some housing or some subsidized housing or some reward, but but not for your bad habits.
1: Now I know that you have spoken with leaders in in California and and other West Coast cities that are experiencing these issues. Do they recognize that they're? is an issue and if so why aren't they taking steps to actually bring change yeah
2: i mean this is the craziest thing i mean i found a lot of agreement from both liberals and conservatives for the program that i'm advocating which is just a modified dutch model a modified european model um i interviewed governor gavin newsom california governor gavin newsom's top advisor on mental health, homelessness and addiction. His name is Thomas Insel. He worked at the National Institute of Mental Health for 12 years. He was the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. The man and I had a zoom conversation for over an hour. He's got his own book coming out. And we were like finishing each other's sentences. I mean, like we didn't disagree on anything, like literally zero, we had zero disagreements. And I just asked him, I was like, You know tom like can you go talk to the governor (laughs) um like what's going on like why is this not happening and he just kept he just like well the people in sacramento they say you have to modify the constitution okay so let's modify the constitution that's actually not as hard as it may sound we pass ballot initiatives all the time in california to modify the constitution it's one of the things we love to do that in california He finally said, and he said it six times in our interview, it's a leadership problem. It's a leadership problem. It's a leadership problem, which is as close Mm. as he would come to basically saying Gavin Newsom is not the leader that we need, because he obviously, Tom Insel has to be a political person. He's a very good person, by the way. I mean, it's not a criticism at all. We've got a problem with our political leadership, obviously. I think you need new leadership in California. Um, can that can someone beat Gavin Newsom next year in the run for governor? Very hard. Gavin Newsom has so much money. So to some extent, what I'm talking about here is the need for significant political change. And I think that Democrats certainly need to change, but I think Republicans need to contest Democrats and democratic rule on these issues. And I'll tell you something that really I found inspiring is that the way that in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, it took political change, it took really a political revolution whereby the center-right defeated the left-wing parties on this issue, on this issue of open drug scenes. And that is how, that is why the Dutch government and the Dutch government has been a center-right government I mean, if it were translated into American context, it might be more like center left. I don't know. But in in the Netherlands, it was center right. They defeated the left on this issue. And so what I would say to my Republican friends, and I'm an independent, is is I would say, start competing with Democrats on this issue. Um, Have a proper agenda. And I think that that's not just what it's been to date. I think what it's been to date is I hear Republicans and conservatives talk a lot about the need for the churches and the charities and private sector solutions. That's not good enough. There has to be a governmental response. And so for me, if the center right is going to be the change that we need in the world, then they need to change, I think, the agenda that they're offering. Um, and we're starting to see some of that. I did see uh, Republican candidates in the recall that that just failed. Attempt to offer that, but I think much more should be done both at the state and the federal level by conservatives and Republicans to offer a proper agenda to deal with this problem because. You know California it's the number one issue it's not the number one issue nationwide but it's the number one issue in California and it's also now a big issue in Boston Philadelphia Chicago New York other big cities where conservatives. um, Republicans Center right candidates uh, want to start contesting democratic rule.
1: So, in the model that you have created, taking uh, taking pieces from the Netherlands, what they do there, and how to address homelessness, drug addiction, mental health, what is step one? What is the action that uh, that progressive cities need to take today to start fixing this problem?
2: Yeah, I mean, the first thing is shut down the open air drug dealing. There's no need for that. Build emergency shelters require people to use them do triage if you want to earn housing and make progress on your personal plan i think the issue needs to be handled statewide so that people that are that are arrested in the open drug scene in san francisco can get treatment in fresno can get treatment a couple hundred miles away away from where the temptations of drugs are I'm completely practical when it comes to dealing with addiction. Some addicts need opioid substitutes. They might need, you know, methadone or Suboxone as a substitute. That's fine. I think that there's something more heroic about becoming completely sober and abstinent. But I don't, I think we're dealing with a massive drug epidemic and we should, we don't, we can't be perfectionists about this. We can't make the perfect enemy the good. So shelter first, treatment first, er, housing earned, make psychiatric and addiction care a statewide function, create CalPsych. And then we probably need to, you know, I, I mean, I'm not totally sure. I mean, it was funny because I would get to this place with this book where I go, gosh, you know, is the problem the, the liberal laws? Is it the liberal judges? Or is it the the the, the the politicians and the public it's kind of all three so one question mm-hmm. one question is how much can be done under existing laws the short answer is a lot um, do we need to change some of the laws too probably um, but again that's what you have leadership for because if you have political leadership then the leadership you know for example, if we had a, a, a truly great governor, the governor would come in and say, would do as much as you could through executive order. You would then put forward a big legislative package or separate legislative vehicles, it depends, in front of the legislature. And then you would also put a bunch of initiatives on the ballot because you know the thing is the, the, the great thing about having an emergency, a, a true crisis like this one is that you have the will of the people to wanna to solve this. I mean, the public in California are just we're fed up. I mean, people are fleeing the state. We're desperate. I mean, honestly, it's gotten so bad that the real I- issue, I think, is just the cynicism that people believe that nothing can be done. And we are ended up losing mm. some of our best and brightest people to New York and Miami and, and other states.
1: Yeah. Well, you've been living in this world for so long. Are you able to kind of walk out the other side of all of this research optimistic? Do you think that there can actually be real change?
2: I do, I find hope in a a couple of different areas. First of all, I think that the culture is changing. I think that we're in the midst or we're at the beginning of a backlash against cancel culture, against woke religion and woke ideology. Even, um, it's interesting. uh, There are even some liberals and leftists that are expressing support for my position on drugs uh, as well as on energy. They're starting to do so on Twitter. They get shouted down by other progressives, but they're starting to kind of you know poke their head up out of the um, you know out of the out of the tunnels to sort of say, hey, I think Schellenberger's making a good point about this. It's not moral to have people with schizophrenia on the street. So that's starting to happen in the culture. I, I love these long form podcasts because, you know, one of the problems that this issue has had is that people go, well, it's really complex. And that's been a way to dismiss having the conversation about what to do about it. Long form podcasts are a way to talk about the complexity in a way that it's just much harder to do on television and sound bites. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm excited about what's happening in the culture. And then I just think there is a big opportunity politically for somebody to offer. You know, and honestly, I genuinely believe it could come from either the center right or the center left. California has an open primary system, so you could have a Democrat run on this agenda against Gavin Newsom next year. You could have a Republican run or you could have an independent run. So it seems to me that there's a big amount of space for some political entrepreneur who picks up this agenda. Uh, my, I and my organization have helped to create a new statewide coalition called the California Peace coalition, because we don't have peace in the streets, we don't have peace in people's minds. And we have attracted support from parents of kids killed by fentanyl, parents of kids addicted to fentanyl, Mm. recovering addicts, community leaders, and and just interested citizens like myself. And I do think that it's created a kind of opportunity for, for a different approach than the one that's been pursued either by the left or the right on these questions for the last 30 years.
1: The book is San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. You can follow Michael on Twitter at MD. You can get a copy of the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can listen to it on Audible. Uh, we could, Michael, we could keep going, <laughs> but want to let you go. Certainly. But thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate your insight.
2: It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for having me on.
3: The Biden administration has been in power for almost a year. And the radical left has been imposing its dangerous ideology on America. Not only do they want to expand government control and promote cancel culture, but they also want to rewrite our nation's history, indoctrinate American students in our public school system, attack our traditional values of honor, liberty, and justice for all, and implement a Marxist agenda that unleashes socialism throughout our country. Here at the Heritage Foundation, we need your help to finish the year strong and prepare for the battles that lie ahead in 2022. By making a tax-deductible year-end gift right now, you'll help advance your principles, free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and a strong national defense at a time when our nation needs these principles most. Visit heritage.org slash year-end to make your tax-deductible donation
1: today. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to The Daily Signal Podcast.
0: You can find The Daily Signal Podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. 2022 is quickly approaching, and if you haven't had the chance already, please do take some time to give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It is unbelievable how helpful somebody giving us a five-star review and a rating is to spreading the message and getting more people listening to our podcast. And we would really appreciate if you like what we're doing, you would take the time, rate our show, give us a review.
1: And thank you all again for listening during this Christmas season. We look forward to being back with you all tomorrow.